And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, VA does not have a good handle on its contractor employees. Plus, this VA researcher has devoted his career to technology for assisting the disabled. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, it's been more than five years since DOD started the acquisition to overhaul its military moving system. Now the Pentagon says it's finally just a few weeks away from seeing the first moves under the Global Household Goods Contract. DOD plans to use the contract for up to $18 billion worth of work over the next decade. And yet, the Pentagon faces some big questions about who will actually do that work. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu joins me with the latest. And Jared, what you're reporting is that the prime contractor is ready to go. All of the integration issues are done between it and the government and so forth. But the subs are not showing up to say, here I am. Well, they may be, but we don't know who they are as part of the issue here right now. Going back to where you started, yeah, that the main hang-up lately has been IT integration problems between the systems operated by HomeSafe, DOD's new prime contractor for operating the entire military moving system, and U.S. Transportation Command. Getting into this new global household goods contract really required the development of two systems, one on the contractor side that's going to be used by individual military members to help manage their moves and all the individual moving companies that are involved as subcontractors, and then also a new system on the DOD side to order those moves to manage the entire process on the government side. So getting both of those up and running and playing nicely together is apparently the, the, the latest holdup here. They did some another round of IT integration testing in January. That apparently went well enough that they feel like they can move forward. And yes, over the next several weeks, uh, we should start seeing some of those test moves happening, according to DOD. Very small scale so far. They're just going to be local moves, like within a local community, essentially, so they can, you know, work the bugs out of this system, see what works, see what doesn't before they even contemplate doing any kind of long distance moves. And under the contract, who is it that actually selects the particular sub that's going to do a given move? Is it the prime contractor and the Pentagon just has reports and oversight? Yeah, that, that's basically right. The idea behind this global household goods contract concept is that there is a single move manager that handles the entire process soup to nuts, and DOD's only interaction with the moving industry is through that contractor, HomeSafe in this case. Uh, it is the uh, ultimate winner of, of that award. The selection process as to who uh, actually handles the on-the-ground work is then up to HomeSafe. HomeSafe, of course, does not operate any of its own trucks. It does not have any drivers of its own, so it's entirely reliant on uh, subcontractors in the moving industry uh, to handle all the actual work. And these are expected to be companies like the standard names, Allied Van Lines or Mayflower, that type of... That is exactly what was the expectation. However, all of those companies, as far as we can tell, have, have declined to opt into this contract, uh, as far as we know. I, I've talked to really the major players that make up most of DOD's existing capacity. All of them say that they are not participating because they say the rates are so low that they would lose money on this endeavor. And none of them know who has actually signed up with 
with HomeSafe. Interestingly, HomeSafe is also declining to tell us who its subcontractor uh, partners are. They say that's because um, there's been essentially intimidation, they allege, on the part of the traditional moving companies so that uh, the, the companies who are actually participating in the contract are afraid to publicly identify themselves. Very strange situation. I've never seen anything quite like that, where somebody doing a, a large portion of government work wants to remain anonymous. That's strange. I wonder if there's some sort of a mob connection where there's territories that are protected <laughs> by different companies and these would cross those lines. It, it's it's really not like that. The, the moving industry is relatively small and close-knit, but it is also very competitive. There's many, many, many different subcontractors involved in the moving industry right now, you know, hundreds of them. But but all of the work really runs through fewer than a dozen companies, mostly family-owned companies that act as agents and they each have their own networks. As the system works right now, they get uh, that, that work assigned directly by DOD. So, yeah, definitely no mob connections or anything like that that I'm aware of. But as I said, it is a, it is a relatively um, small industry where everybody kind of knows each other. Sure. So then when DOD rolls out these tests, we don't know who it's going to be that's going to do the work. But what's their plan for the initial rollout and then the scaling up over time? They say that they are going to make it completely conditions-based, is what U.S. Transportation Command told us earlier this week. They're going to see what happens with these test moves. And as I said, it's going to be very small scales to, st- to start with. They say in GHC, the Global Household Goods Contract, that's going to make up probably fewer than 1% of all the moves that DOD does during this upcoming summer uh, peak moving season. Then they'll start to ramp up later this year if all goes well, starting in the September time frame. And then ideally, all of the domestic moves happening by the peak season in 2025. But as you said at the opening, we're we're pretty far into this contract by now. DOD was expected to start really ramping up this contract over a year ago. So there there have been delays, partly because of bid protests, but partly because of these latest IT integration challenges. All right. But getting back to the price question and the fact that the people that have the capacity to carry out moves on a DOD scale don't want to participate, what are they saying about that? Because that seems like a pretty intractable issue. It is a very intractable issue, and there's not a whole lot of wiggle room to to change the terms at this point because the prices that HomeSafe is able to pay out to these individual subcontractors are somewhat constrained by what they're getting from the government. And those prices were largely set back in the 2019 timeframe when when all of the bidders who were vying for this contract put in their individual price proposals to DOD. There has been some upward adjustment to that that is allowable under the terms of the contract, but uh, it is still very constrained. So even if HomeSafe wanted to increase the rates that it's um, that it's paying to these individual subcontractors, there's only so much that it can do. The rates that it's getting from DOD are currently, uh, I'm told, lower than what moving companies are getting directly from DOD right now. Some of the folks who've seen the rate sheets that HomeSafe is offering say that, that they would be making anywhere between 20 and 25% less than they were back in 2019. So, so price really is going to be a, a big issue here. And, and this probably only works if the industry changes in some way, at least under these terms. And I think that's a lot of what HomeSafe and its parent company, KBR, are hoping for here. They, they say that the reason they think this is going to work is they're, as they say, not constrained by DUD's existing uh, partnerships with moving companies. And they're going to, quote unquote, disrupt the industry, is what KBR's CEO told us earlier this week. As far as we can tell, is this contract free of some of the constraints that are affecting other areas of federal contracting? For example, 
the notion that the drivers and the truck operators would have to be a certain level of green or have electric trucks or have certain labor payment standards, which could also make people run away from it. Yes, there is a very big one, and it is the Service Contract Act, which we're familiar with, which applies to really all service contracts in the government. And that is a new feature as far as the moving industry is concerned. It's not something that they have ever had to deal with briefly, as as a lot of our listeners know. It really just requires that employees working under a government service contract be paid fair labor wages based on a locality area that, that are set by the Department of Labor. But that's an entirely new concept for the moving industry because it does not, by and large, run on hourly wages. They're, uh, up up until now, have been exempt from that sort of thing. Uh, You know, a moving company is paid a tariff based on what it has published, and then that that money kind of flows down on a per-shipment and, you know, per-tonnage basis to individual drivers, to individual packers. The whole concept of hourly wages is really foreign to this industry, and they say implementing something like that for only their DOD moves and not the rest of their commercial moves is, is, is just something that they do not know how to manage. Wow, sounds like an intractable issue. But for the meantime, they are promising they're going to start the small-scale moves soon. Yes, so we should see, Transcom says, in the next few weeks, they're going to publicly announce the locations where those test moves will take place. That's going to have to be done, uh, obviously, in consultation with the military services because they're the ones that actually order individual service members from place to place. But they do want to start out small. They want to start out local to see how everything goes. So it could be one end of Fort Bragg to the other. It could, or off base at Fort Bragg onto Fort Bragg or vice versa. That's probably exactly the kind of thing we're looking at in these early stages. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, this VA researcher has devoted his career to technology for assisting the disabled. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. My next guest has spent a career improving the lives of veterans and others with physical disabilities. He's overseen development of vastly improved wheelchairs and prosthetic devices. Now he's an inductee to the Inventors Hall of Fame. I spoke at length with VA senior research career scientist and Paralympian himself, Rory Cooper. Here's an excerpt. The two patents that I was recognized for in the Inventors Hall of Fame was the ergonomic push rims and also the um, variable compliance joystick with uh, compensation algorithms. Tell us more about those. So they're both the interfaces to wheelchairs. The push rims are the devices that they're little rims that mount to the uh, wheels of a manual wheelchair to help you propel it. My colleagues and I uh, we developed an ergonomic design to help reduce the risk of carpal tunnel syndrome and rotator cuff injuries. And then the other invention is the algorithms that are used on nearly all the power wheelchairs in the world. What they really hold in common is they provide freedom of mobility, right? So the first one is freedom from pain during mobility of manual wheelchair users, and the other one allowed greater population of people to use power wheelchairs independently. And getting to the ergonomic push rims, you are a Paralympian. You know, having been a marathon runner myself, I remember seeing the runners in wheelchairs pushing. It's unbelievable what they're able to do for two hours at that speed. Was that one of the activities moving in a race pace that led you to discover ways to make this much more comfortable to grab and push? Certainly. Very interesting. All the way back in the 1980s, 
I've started to realize that a lot of wheelchair racers would push many, many miles a week, you know, as you mentioned, 26 miles for a marathon, and not develop rotator cuff injuries or carpal tunnel syndrome, so that's shoulder and wrist injuries, at the same rate or at any higher rate than people who just push their regular wheelchairs. And so it led to the thinking that there must be something between the interface of how you sit in the wheelchair, the positioning in the wheelchair, and the types of push rims that you use that actually can either increase or decrease the risk of an injury. And that led to a whole line of research, and eventually uh, that research led to some inventions and patents, which then became products and are now used widely throughout the world. Similarly, the joystick work started really when I got engaged with the, um, it's a little bit politically incorrect now, but the California Association of the Physically Handicapped, or CAF, which uh, Judy Human, who was a famous, also federal employee, sadly passed away prematurely last year, but she got me engaged then, and I noticed that, you know, it's funny, I was an engineer, and individuals I got to meet who use power wheelchairs would uh, come and talk to me about problems they were having and what potential solutions we could come up with, and one of those was how difficult it was to drive a power wheelchair using the joystick technology at the time, and could we work on that, and that also led to a a rather lengthy uh, line of research, but we finally gathered enough evidence on what the challenges are. Uh, and also at the same time, technology advanced. Microchips, microprocessors became more available in sensing technology. And we were able to um, come up with some a collection of algorithms and some hardware that would help make it possible for more people to drive. And so it's pretty exciting. Best thing about being in the Inventors Hall of Fame is one, I'm seeing the field of assistive technology and rehabilitation engineering recognized. And also in some ways like the ADA, I think the most important part about the Americans with Disabilities Act is it recognized people with disabilities as Americans and as citizens. And you mentioned HURL a moment ago. That's the Human Engineering Research Laboratories, plural, which you founded as part of a partnership between Veterans Affairs, Veterans Health Administration, and the University of Pittsburgh. What are some of the leading efforts going on at HURL these days? Still actually working now on interfaces, but more looking at for more for robotic devices. So both robotic wheelchairs, I think robots and wheelchairs are going to merge at some point as well as working on robotic manipulators. So individuals that don't have the use or have limited use of their arms can use robotic arms in order to control devices. So I think both our MeBot, our virtual mobile heads, robotic wheelchair. Personally, I'm also very excited about two um, sort of new areas that, uh, that we're engaged in or really heavily engaged in. One of them is is looking at transportation, autonomous transportation and vehicles and transportation systems, as well as airline travel. And you're probably aware of some of the discussions that are going on about making it possible for wheelchair pot users to use power wheelchairs to travel uh, and also to make travel for all wheelchair users, people with disabilities, airline travel to be more friendly. And we started to tackle that problem. We like to take on the big problems in some ways. And then the other one I'm really excited about is we're using Kirigami engineering techniques to revolutionize the design of wheelchairs and adapted sports equipment. Kirigami is sort of the cousin to origami. So Kirigami is cutting and folding. Origami is folding. And you can use hmm. Kirigami engineering is using engineering materials such as 
uh, metals and composites and things like that and using folding patterns and cutting patterns. What's exciting about that is I think that we'll be able to improve the quality of a variety of devices, uh, make them fit users, and then lower the cost, make them much more widely available. Yeah, in some ways you're saving taxpayer dollars because Medicare, Medicaid, and VA pay for such a large percentage of these assistive devices each year. Yes. What I hope to do is provide higher quality products to Americans and to our veterans at the same time lowering costs. And just a quick question about the airline travel for people that are in motorized types of devices. I mean, there's one single variable that doesn't vary that is an absolute wall for this work, and that is the width of aisles. The width of aisles is certainly a problem, although you can adjust that to some extent by putting the person near the door so you don't actually go down the aisle. But there's other challenges, access to the bathroom, uh, the ability to stay in your power wheelchair so the power wheelchair is compatible with FAA standards for airline seats. So there's current research being supported by the um, AIDS the Community Living and of HHS that tend to indicate that uh, that's the case. And then the other part is, you know, how do you safely, adequately secure the device and then make sure that it's cabin compatible or cabin safe? And those are all certainly doable. They it's going to require some collaboration and some work on the part of, well, actually on the part of consumers, on the part of wheelchair designers and manufacturers, and on part of the aircraft industry, and of course on the part of government, especially when you're talking about FAA regulations and and airport designs and services. And it's not only that; it's not just a mechanical system, but there'll be you know, our electromechanical system, that be training of employees, and probably a look at improvements in the service models used by both airlines and airports. And in your work, you have to look at so many developments in the greater world. There's advances in robotics coming all the time. Artificial intelligence all of a sudden has arrived like a tsunami, you know, on the scene. And then there's a lot of new material engineering going on for a variety of purposes. Is one of your challenges making sure that those things, one, that you're in the staff there are aware of them, and secondly, making sure they are brought to bear on the particular challenges you're working with? That's an excellent point. Yes. We've been involved in machine learning and AI for some time, especially through our coaching technologies, but also improving human machine interfaces. A lot of people probably don't realize when you drive your car, you and your car are actually driving together. The computer in your car and you are are both actually operating the vehicle. And then wheelchairs are becoming more like that. Your car, your smartphone also all has AI built in and machine learning built in and shares in different ways. And so we've been working on that for some time. But you're right, new design techniques, new manufacturing techniques, new materials. Uh, One of the exciting things that we've just recently got involved in is quantum sensing. I think that's also going to be where you can do non-invasive, non-contact physiological monitoring. You know, I think that might have the future potential for looking at how technology can improve therapy, right? Health outcomes or functional outcomes, as well as as user interfaces in the future where we can, you know, if we have access to more signals, especially in a non-contact way, in a reliable way. And then, of course, you know, lots of advances in the field of robotics, and we've taken advantage of that, too. Some of the new actuators that have come out based on the defense robotic systems and the humanoid robotic systems that uh, that also can be used to improve 
be integrated and improve mobility for veterans or Americans with disabilities. Dr. Rory Cooper, senior research scientist at the Veterans Health Administration and founder of the Human Engineering Research Laboratories. There's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety, along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors have new grounds to protest their way into a multiple award contract. But first... Veterans Affairs does not have a good handle on its contractor employees. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. By law and regulation, the Veterans Affairs Department is supposed to check out the employees used by its contractors. A recent look-see by the VA's Office of Inspector General found some pretty serious noncompliance. With details and why this is so risky, we turn to VA's Deputy Assistant IG for Audits and Evaluations, Jeff Brown. Mr. Brown, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And you looked at 50 contracts that involve supplying people. Uh, Tell us the nature of these contracts, the types of services that were being supplied, and then we'll get into the details of what you found. The type of contracts we selected were obviously service contracts because that would involve the most amount of uh, individuals and, and personnel that would need background and security checks. And they ranged everything from um, healthcare uh, exams, unarmed security guards, child care, medical disability exams, and janitorial work, anything that would require access to a VA facility. Right. So that means it included people who actually touch veterans. That's correct. Yes. And you found that 47 out of 50 contract files did not, and I'm reading, and you can explain what this means, did not include position designation records that established the position investigative requirements for the contract. Translate that for us. Sure. The position designation is is key for the, kind of the first step in, in vetting the people that work for the, the contractors that support the VA, largely because we don't want to waste un, unnecessary resources in delving into people's background you know, unnecessarily. So depending on the level of involvement, the level of access to facilities and information uh, will dictate how, how much background investigation is required into each individual. So uh, an individual with computer access, a computer technician, you know, that could possibly steal or violate information security policies would need a certain level of background check. Someone that deals directly with veterans or employees of the VA would need a certain level of background check. And then someone with more limited access, maybe a janitorial service or something like that, would need less less of a background check. But they all need some form of, of vetting. And uh, it begins with the position designation to establish that security risk. And these lacked that designation. Did that mean these contracts also lacked the background checks themselves? In many cases, yes, they did lack the background checks as well. We started off with the position designation because before you can do anything, you have to determine what level of background check is needed for these individuals. And without that, that's kind of getting off on the wrong foot with the first step. Right. So I imagine the different individual contracts had different designations. That is, if you're buying a custodial contract to clean up labs and operating rooms and hallways, that's probably going to be a different company than is supplying physicians to examine veterans. 
Yeah, in a different company or at least, a, you know, a different level of background check for that individual. Um, you know, some of these contracts can can have several types of individuals from you know, security guards to janitorial services, as we said, um, under one contract. But each, that's why each position, each uh, each body that we're contracting for has a different position designation to, to establish that security background check needed. Right. And in the majority of these cases, you also found that VA did not include the, again, I'll read it, did not include contract language to communicate contractor vetting requirements to the contractor. That's correct. When it wasn't included in the contract and the company is unaware that this is even needed, you know, we can be fairly certain that it's not being accomplished the way it should be. And then ultimately, 215 of 286 contractor employees that you looked at under these contracts, 75% of them had no evidence that they had fingerprint checks. A whole bunch did not have any kind of background investigative work done at all. That's correct. It was a large percentage, 75%, as you mentioned, uh, didn't have any kind of background check or any documentation of it being done. As auditors, you know, we can only say what we find. So it's hard when you're looking at 2020 contracts in 2023 to say, no, this wasn't done, but it's kind of, if the record isn't there, then, you know, then we can safely assume that it probably wasn't done. We have to catch it that way that the documentation wasn't there because someone could always bring out a, no, we did have these records. We just were or, you know, mislocated them or something like that. Yes, if you looked at 50 contracts, I mean, the VA has tens of thousands of contracts, but if the bulk of those 50 lacked all of these requirements and weren't carried out, it's probably safe. You're assuming this is a projectable finding across VA writ large. That's correct. We, we think it's systematic. I mean, I, we looked at as a judgmental sample. So in audit language, we would, a statistical sample is something we project across the whole universe of contracts. You know, our teams tend to be about a four person team that's reviewing this. So we have to select a sample that's big enough that they can accomplish in a timely manner and get the information needed out, but is large enough to capture the view of the whole. So we thought 50 was a good example. And we, that was across different contracting organizations in the VA. And as we said, different types of contracts for different types of services. We're speaking with Jeff Brown. He's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations at the Veterans Affairs Department. And what raised this issue to the VA OIG? Did someone blow the whistle or did someone say, hey, you better look at this? Well, we've actually done a lot of work in this area. Another group within our organization has looked into the government side for vetting and granting badges and, and security cards to government direct government workers. And being in the contracting realm, we looked at the, the physical security of contractor IDs prior to this report and what, what is termed a PIV card or personal identification verification card. During that that review, we found that you know the, the background checks into obtaining those cards were often the documentation wasn't there and we started asking the questions. When we begin any review, we have you know the IG hotline that gets hundreds, if not thousands of complaints each month. And so we come through that database of hotlines to see if any allegations have been made that support or, or raise more concern about the area. And as you see the example in the report of the St. Cloud, Minnesota um, uh, hospital issue, we uh, we did find hotlines that directly related to this. So we you know investigated those as well as we're conducting the audit. Would it be accurate to say this is kind of a hot button? This is a something urgent for VA to get after. Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, the VA has a has a huge mission and, and they have a lot on their plate. And so determining the priority of this one issue is probably uh, someone above my pay grade. But yes, it is is a hot button issue because, I mean, 
really want to make sure that our veterans and our workers are safe when they're doing their job. You, no one can, can kind of focus on what they have to do and providing the best care to our veterans if they have to worry about the supported staff they have working with them. And let's talk about some of the top line recommendations you made. We felt that a lot of the the issues that generated these problems were a lack of clear guidance. There's external government-wide regulations from the Office of Personal Management and and other federal entities that apply to any contractor position with the the federal government, including VA. And then to build on that, VA has several policies that are meant to implement those regulations. And when you read through them, it it isn't very hard to understand why some of these mistakes might have been made. It's conflicting. It's outdated. Uh, I think the most recent policy update was in the 2010 timeframe. So you can imagine just how different the world has been in the last 13 years and how security requirements may have changed, uh, you know, including, you know, accessing social media of individuals that may be uh, applying for positions, et cetera. And so we just felt that, uh, you know, the hinged a lot on that conflicting guidance and determining responsibility. So that was probably our most key recommendation was to streamline those policies, firmly designate what entities are responsible for what, and make sure that these contractors are being vetted properly. And did the VA, I guess it's mostly VHA officials that you dealt with, agree with the findings and the recommendations generally? They, they agreed with all, we made six recommendations. They agreed with all six. The only deliberation between us and the agency was how conflicting or again, who was responsible for editing these policies or ultimately doing the contractor background checks. Um, but we were able to hash that out during the, the recommendation review and comment period. And two of the recommendations currently have already been closed. Four are still open, but they have corrective action plans in place to try to uh, mitigate those recommendations. And we'll continue to monitor those and close those when appropriate action has been taken. Jeff Brown is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Audits and Evaluations at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors have new grounds to protest their way onto a multiple award contract. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Multiple award contracts don't mean everyone who bids gets a slot. A new federal circuit court ruling shows losing companies can't protest those who did get an award and maybe knock them off. We get details of this important case from attorney Stephen Bacon of Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. Mr. Bacon, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. So this was protested not to the GAO, but to the court in the first place, the Court of Federal Claims. Tell us what happened here. Who's suing who? So this was a VA procurement, the T4NG contract for IT services. Some of your listeners may know there's a T4NG2 second generation contract, but this was the first generation contract and actually an on-ramp process where the VA was seeking to add contractors to the first generation of the T4NG contract. And so this protest involved a challenge to that competition for the on-ramp. All right. And they were going to add several, and this one company did not make the cut and protested. That's right. So the solicitation, as is often the case for a multiple award contract, it said that the VA intended to add 
seven awardees, but it gave the agency flexibility to choose the number of awardees. And the agency ultimately made nine awards to proposals that were either good or outstanding. And REV was rated acceptable, and so it didn't make the cut and then challenged that determination by the VA. So REV, a losing company, challenged the findings of excellent or good of some of the ones that did get awards. And what grounds did they base that on? What information did they have that would allow them to say, hey, they should have been acceptable like us, or we should have been good like them? So REV actually had two categories of allegations that's common in a bid protest. In the first instance, they challenged the VA's evaluation of their own proposal, right, saying, Instead of acceptable, we should have been rated either good or outstanding because of flaws in the way that the agency evaluated our proposal. But they also challenged six of the awardees and argued that they should have been eliminated from the competition for one reason or another. They made allegations that some of the awardees had organizational conflicts of interest that should have excluded them or had some other defect in their proposal that rendered them unacceptable under the terms of the solicitation. Right. So those are pretty serious findings. Organizational conflicts of interest, you know, is something that raises eyebrows. But initially at the Court of Federal Claims, they were just ruled out on jurisdictional grounds, standing grounds, I should say. On standing grounds with respect to the second category of allegations. So in a bid protest, one of the key sort of thresholds that you have to get over is to be able to establish that you have standing to protest meaning that you have the right to even bring your allegations into court. And so that's a two-part test. The first is to decide whether you're an actual offeror in the competition that has a direct economic interest in the outcome. That's typically easy to satisfy as long as you've submitted a proposal. But there's a second part of the test that was really at issue here, and that's showing that there's prejudicial error that you're alleging. In other words, that you can show that there was a substantial chance that you would have received a contract if the agency didn't make whatever error you're alleging in the protest. And so that prong of, of the standing test was really kind of the core issue that the Court of Federal Claims used to say that REV didn't have standing to challenge the awardees because in the first instance, it didn't establish that the agency had made any error in assigning an acceptable rating to its proposal. The court took that finding that there was no error in the acceptable finding. And so even if REV was able to successfully eliminate some of the awardees, the court ruled that it didn't show that it would have had a substantial chance at winning the contract. We're speaking with Stephen Bacon. He's an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. But then Rev went to the Federal Circuit Court on appeal then and got a different finding. That's right. The, the Federal Circuit reversed. They brought this issue of standing, Rev did, to the Federal Circuit. And the Federal Circuit disagreed with the way that the Court of Federal Claims addressed this standing question in the context of a multiple award contract where there's no set number of guaranteed awardees. And the circuit disagreed with the Court of Federal Claims logic that if the six awardees that Rev had challenged were eliminated, that they wouldn't have had a substantial chance. The circuit agreed with the protester and said, well, if you had six of those awardees and they had been eliminated, 
there would have been room for Rev to hypothetically get into the winner's circle if it's right about its allegations. Well, that's like the San Francisco 49ers saying, well, if it wasn't for those people, you know, from the Midwest and Kansas City, we would have won the Super Bowl. What is the <laughs> meaning of that, of saying, well, if, because the if didn't occur, those companies were rated higher. That's right. So, I mean, it's sort of a hypothetical test that the court engages in to decide whether they're even going to address the merits of your protest. And so this isn't ruling in favor of the protester on the merits. It's just simply saying that the court should have grappled with and decided whether those six awardees should have been eliminated because the Court of Federal Claims just didn't even reach those issues. And so this decision kicks it back to the lower court to say whether there was an organizational conflict of interest or whether there was some reason that the protester pointed out correctly, potentially, that some of those awardees should have been eliminated. So at this point, then, FEVS has spent a lot of time and money to break new legal ground, but not necessarily to get that contract. That's right. This doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to get into the winner's circle, but it gives them another opportunity to go back to the Court of Federal Claims and have their at least at a minimum, have their OCI allegations heard and their allegations that some of the other awardees should have been eliminated heard. And if that's the case, if they're able to prevail on that, then in theory, they could get an award. Right. But does that happen automatically? I mean, once the federal circuit court has rendered its opinion, is it up to the company to carry that back and get a new court date and retry the whole thing at the federal court of claims? That's right. So it will go back remanded is the legal term remanded to the Court of Federal Claims to then decide those other allegations on the merits based on the administrative record before the court. And if the court rules in favor of the protester, then that typically kicks it back to the agency to then look at the court's findings. And if the protester was correct, that may change the outcome of the new evaluation that the agency has to conduct to comply with the court's ruling. And how long could all that take by the time T4NG2 comes out? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the curious things about this case is, you know, they're fighting over getting on the on-ramp onto the prior generation contract. And now there's already been awards under the second generation T4NG contract. So it's a little curious to wonder what, what their real interest is in here. But I suppose there's still some runway left on this first generation contract, and they're hoping they can get on it um, if the agency continues to award task orders. You know, in another domain of adjudicating cases, there is the concept of, is this case precedential or is it simply routine application of what we already knew? Is this in some sense precedential? Sure. I mean, anytime the federal circuit rules on a bid protest issue, I mean, I, I kind of think of them like the Supreme Court of government contracts in a sense, right? I mean, there's very rarely does a uh, bid protests go all the way up to the actual Supreme Court. So typically the federal circuit is the court of last resort for government contracts. And so anytime they rule on this kind of issue, it sets a precedent in this particular area. And here with the you know proliferation and importance of multiple award contracts, this does provide that helpful clarification that protesters really should have a right to go in and challenge awardees, even where there's some flexibility that the agency has to make a particular number of awards. So Oye, Oye could still end up being just Oye, but we just don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll see how this plays out and how agencies react to it. I mean, I'm sure there's ways that 
you know, these kinds of issues will continue to crop up because the government loves to make standing arguments any way that they can kind of prevent the court from reaching the merits of an issue. They want to raise those issues, and, and rightly so. I mean, those are um, important arguments for, for them to make and get made in lots of bid protests. So I'm sure we'll continue to see that. Stephen Bacon is an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Like many agencies, the Navy does a pretty good job of buying and replacing old technology. Where it struggles is how to sustain it over the long term. Jennifer Edgen, the Assistant Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, tells Federal News Network's Jason Miller about how her office is leading what she calls a perspective shift to ensure technology stays modernized. And it's really based in uh, the uh, advances in computing. So it used to be you would buy a system, a box that was contained with hardware, software, all different types of things, and use it till its end of life. Then you'd replace it with the next best thing. Well, as cloud computing and uh, other cloud-based technologies have come online, it changes that model. Uh, And so the the Defense uh, Innovation Board uh, had a great quote. It said, software is never done. So when we talk about sustainment, that is the iterative update, the update of software, the update of different capabilities, uh, new things that come online. That's a mindset shift. And that's what you see kind of permeating across a lot of the conference talks that we're we're having out here and a lot of the perspectives that we're trying to drive as a resource sponsor, changing our mindset from a buy and replace to a buy and sustain so that our sailors can get updates when they need them, how they need them to face uh, whatever they may be facing at sea. You mentioned this idea of resource sponsor. Let me just ask you, define that a little bit. I think folks may not understand. You don't necessarily give them money, but you say, hey, this is a capability we want to support and let us help you support it. What do you mean by resource sponsor? So as uh, the resource sponsor, uh, we drive strategies, policies, requirements, and resourcing across the information warfare portfolio. I like to equate it to being a a shark from the hit show Shark Tank, uh, but in the government space. Uh, So we uh, do a lot of things by really understanding threat patterns, understanding the needs of the sailors, understanding uh, the needs uh, of the fleets in order to drive updates to requirements and then uh, the resourcing, both from a financial and an advocacy uh, standpoint across all of those capabilities. So as we talk about this idea of the buy and sustain model, something that you may advocate for is, hey, we got to move to low-code, no-code platforms, or is it more, we need this capability and that should be on a low-code, no-code platform because we want to be able to update it whenever new capabilities are needed. Discuss, maybe there's a fine line there. Correct. So I'd like to uh, go from uh, a standpoint of functional requirements versus technical requirements. When you say things like low-code, no-code, those are design parameters or technical uh, requirements that we can put in place. The Functional requirements are, are, are from a user viewpoint. So I'm a sailor on a uh, on a surface vessel, and I need to be able to accomplish A, B, and C. That's a great functional requirement. If we look today, all of those things are integrated together. One of the things that we're doing from our role as a resource sponsor is separating them, separating those functional requirements and the technical requirements. Because low-code, no-code could be what we use today, uh, but maybe there's a great computer advance a year from now. The functional requirement is still valid but how we meet that requirement could change. That's where separating these two things will allow us to iterate very, very fast. What's that look like when you separate functional from technical? Is it 
industry goes, oh, no, not two RFIs now from N2, N6. Oh, no, not two RFPs. Maybe describe that so, because I think a lot of vendors and a lot of others, I think, in government may say, hey, we have that same problem. Uh, so I'd like to... Uh put it in the perspective of how a company develops a product. Um, that's a little bit different than how we contract for some of these different things. Uh, if I look at the functional requirements, those can remain relatively stable. And the technical uh, side can change quite rapidly. So when we start talking about different contractual mechanisms or working with industry, I think it's uh, good for us all to share that same mindset of how functional requirements and technical requirements can work together. And then have good uh, governance processes in terms Internally, uh, as a government, so we can make decision, and that supports effective inter interaction with industry partners. Maybe give me an example of how you have, or maybe are thinking about splitting the functional and technical. Again, is it we talking about documents? Are we talking about? Uh, is it, hey, we're going to have a functional team, and they're going to look at this requirement. We're going to have a technical team, and at the end, they'll come to you and say, here's our recommendations. Walk me through how it's going to work, because I think for a lot of people to get their head around it, uh, they automatically will go to documents, or they will automatically go to some sort of contracting action. So if I could put it in uh, tangible terms, if we look at uh, a, f a requirements document, right now you have different annexes, uh, annexes that describe different parameters and things like that. Just uh, take that uh, model and further decompose it. So having a functional uh, side talks about form fit function, then the technical side of how do we want it to work, what are the design parameters that we need to use, even things like, you know, I'm a big design thinking uh, person, I've used it uh, throughout my career. Uh, previously as a program manager and a chief technology officer. Putting um, drawings together, schematics, this is how we want it to work. Uh, those are all uh, very helpful in our industry interactions, our cross-government interactions to deliver uh, capabilities and tools that sailors want to use. And so we'd like to bring that into our uh, design documents, our requirements documents. That, that's our North Star that we can all be aiming towards. One of the other things you mentioned is this update of some cyber policy, some standards. Can you talk a little bit about what you've updated in the last year or so, and plus what's coming up in 2024 and beyond? We recently did uh, an update to one of our uh, big uh, cybersecurity policies. Uh, so we had a, a policy that really didn't uh, specify kind of the role that everybody played in this modern technical ecosystem. So we spent uh, some time last year getting that policy right. I like to say we invited everyone to Thanksgiving dinner and put the, put the place cards out, and now everybody He's really seated at that, that table. Let me jump in. When you say the roles, meaning like like not just the CIO and the CISO roles, but the operator role, the whomever. Correct. As things from the technical side of our acquisition arm, where do they come into play here? Where does our fleet come into play here? How do we look at uh, a, a cybersecurity compliance and then the uh, authority to connect? So where does the, uh, I'll say, network owner, platform owner come into this? So we spent some time really getting that right, getting a, uh, a governance structure uh, right for how we make decisions, how we interact. Uh, we've all, and our next hurdle, or, or hurdle that we're uh, climbing over is the playbooks. How does this work? How do we define that business process? Uh, and so that's uh, what we'll be releasing in the next year. Are there other policies outside of the cyber one that you're also starting to look at? Uh, I know there's a regular 
effort to say which policies are old, which policies need updating, but are there specific ones you're saying, okay, here's our next set? Uh, so I'd like to highlight next how we uh, certify uh, different capabilities to uh, for readiness. So we talk on cybersecurity, typically that comes up as an ATO. Well, how do we package all of the testing? How do we package uh, a technical review so that when a sailor gets a product, it works 100% right the first time? Uh, we want it to come like good housekeeping seal of approval. What's our analogy to that? This is where we bring together technical authority, resource uh, sponsor roles, uh, and our fleet uh, together. You mentioned cyber ready, moving away from the compliance base. I just uh, spoke with uh, Don CIO, Ms. Rathbun, about this, and she went into great detail about cyber ready. From your perspective at the N2N6, how are you working on that cyber ready piece? What are some of those areas you're saying, okay, let's apply these concepts to what we do every day. So I'd like to highlight two things here. Uh, so first, I also have the role of Deputy uh, Don, CIO for Navy, for the Naval Service. Uh, so we're in, uh, we're intimately engaged with uh, Jane's team as we craft out uh, the strategy, the processes, uh, the policies that need to support that cyber-ready approach. Wearing my resource sponsor hat, uh, I, I'm particularly attuned to the status of our programs uh, from a a delivery standpoint. Uh, so we have a tremendous partnership uh, identifying that next set of pilots that take us from the concept and design to the implementation. And so there's a twofold role there. Jennifer Edgen is the Assistant Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.